Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. This episode may be so disconnected, I'm not even sure how this is going to go. It is about 10 o'clock at night. I've been sitting for about the last hour and a half trying to put notes together, thoughts together on this topic. I've been thinking about this topic for a long time, but really felt, obviously, the time was right now that the church is releasing in its October enzyme and has been talked about in the news recently about the seer stone. The argument is whether the narrative has changed. And some Latter-day Saints argue that the narrative hasn't changed. This narrative has always been around, and they point to a half dozen or so references to a seer stone or a stone in a hat. But it's more problematic than that. Mormonism and its leaders have always been uncomfortable with the seer stone. And the question becomes why? Because if you teach a 10-year-old that Joseph put a stone in a hat, buried his face into it, excluded all light, and translated the Book of Mormon, they're all going to look back at the teacher and say, cool. So what makes this story uncomfortable? And my argument today in this episode is that the seer stone leads us to folk magic and leads us to treasure digging And that's where LDS history gets really messy. There are lots of dots to connect. There are lots of little partial stories we've heard within church history, and yet we've missed out on some of the details. Let me, let me begin to kind of take us down this path. I will share several links with this episode. You're going to hear paper rustling all through it. I've got six or seven different resources I'm using. I'll have to kind of put one thing down and pick another up. And I apologize to each of you who feel like this episode is disconnected, but I hope you'll listen to it because I think there's tons of information here that we get bits and pieces within the narrative we're told, but we don't get the full story. Now, I also want to caution people. I will try as much as possible to notify you when a source I am reading is is only one source and some historians would see it as not as credible. I'll try to be careful to do that, but there's just so much. I can't promise you I'm going to be right on the ball with it. I hope that each of you will go back and look at the sources, find the quotes, go figure out who's all saying these things, and you decide in your own mind what is true and what isn't. But with that, let's begin. Let's start off by talking about Joseph Smith's first seer stone. The trouble is that we tell a narrative like Joseph's just this innocent boy. He's not really given much to books. He's just more into meditating and he's asking God questions. He's going to revival meetings and eventually he goes into this grove and gives his first vocal prayer and has this first vision where Heavenly Father and the Savior show up. But there's so much going on before this besides just a leg surgery that we talk about a lot. In 1819... Joseph Smith gets his first seer stone. Now, he not only gets one, it's how he gets it. There's a another diviner in the area, in the neighborhood. Her name is Sally Chase. The Chase name should ring a bell. And, in fact, Sally Chase should ring a bell. We'll get to that later. But for right now, let's just start with this. Sally Chase is a diviner in the neighborhood. She has a green seer stone that she can see lost items in, that she can see see different things that are not actually within her physical sight, but rather she looks in the stone and things that are far away or things that are hidden or things that are covered, she can see. And Joseph 
ask Sally if he can use her green seer stone. She permits him to, and in the stone, he sees that there is another seer stone 150 miles away, buried by a tree. The book that this comes from is The Refiner's Fire, The Making of Mormon Cosmology, 1644 to 1844, and this particular part is on page 151 to 152. In So Joseph in 1819 goes to this tree, digs it up, and he gets his first seer stone, and it is more of a white or clear, transparent type piece of glass or stone. And it's this stone that also plays a part in Mormonism as we go forward. In 1820, we begin to hear a few sources talking about the Smiths as a family beginning to be in operation with a group of money diggers. And it is reported that Alvin Smith is at the lead. That's also important for later on. In, in 1822, a Lumen Walter serves as a seer for a treasure dig on the property of Abner Cole in Palmyra, Wayne County, New York. Uh-oh, wait a minute. Let's pause for a minute. Abner Cole should also ring a bell. Most of you who have heard stories of church history, who have done reading of church history, Abner Cole should sound familiar. How about the name Obadiah Dogberry? Abner Cole worked for a newspaper, The Reflector. He went by the pen name of Obadiah Dogberry. And if you remember when Joseph Smith was beginning to print the Book of Mormon, there was this guy, Abner Cole, who was essentially going into the print shop at night, seeing what, seeing what was being printed as the Book of Mormon, and then and went and published parts of the Book of Mormon in his newspaper, The Reflector. That guy, that's the guy I'm talking about. Now, let's go back. Lumen Walter serves as a seer for a treasure dig on the property of Abner Cole in Palmyra, Wayne County, New York. Joseph Smith Sr., Alvin Smith, and Joseph Smith Jr. participate in this dig. Walter digs three times on the Hill Cumorah and suggests that Joseph might find a treasure there. This source can be found in D. Michael Quinn's Magic in the Early World View. I can't say enough about D. Michael Quinn's work. I would suggest anybody who's interested, go read the books themselves. I'm not saying that every single story or source that D. Michael Quinn quotes is 100% credible, but his book is absolutely great at just giving us all this information, information, uh, various sources that are saying these things, and allowing each of us to kind of make up our own decision. It's in 1822 that Joseph Smith also finds his second seer stone. He happens to be helping dig a well with Willard Chase on Willard's father's property. Willard Chase is the brother of Sally Chase. Sally Chase was the seer in Palmyra with the green stone that we were talking about. So Willard Chase and Joseph are friends. Sally's a diviner. Joseph's divining. Willard's in the mix of all of this. This Lumen Walter guy is doing it, uh, working with Joseph and Joseph Sr. and Alvin. And it's, it's in this 1822 that Joseph is helping Willard dig a well. And as they dig the well, they get down to the bottom and, and Joseph finds this stone. He can see things in it. He asks Willard if he can keep it. Willard, uh, in his sources and, and Willard has, is on record in at least two places talking about this that essentially said, you can't have it, but I'll lend it to you. Well, Willard never got it back. Joseph keeps the second stone. The second stone is the one the church has released pictures of. It is the one used to translate 
the Book of Mormon. And this is Joseph's second seer stone. Now, mind you, the first seer stone he gets before he, he even has the first vision. The second seer stone he gets before he is even met with Moroni. Until the Book of Mormon thrusts young Smith into prominence, Palmyra's most notable seer was Sally Chase, who we already mentioned, with the greenish-colored stone. But there are others who have stones in the area. William Stafford also has a stone. Joshua Stafford has what is called, quote, a peep stone, which looked like white marble and had a hole through the center. Again, magic in the early Mormon, early world view. Chauncey Hart, an unnamed man in Susquehanna County, also had stones to which they found, to which they found lost objects. This is found in Richard Bushman's Joseph Smith and the Beginnings of Mormonism, page 70. It is reported in 1823, again, before the visit with Moroni. Joseph Smith is spending time with an itinerant magician and diviner visiting Palmyra. The magician has magic stones and claims to be able to find water and treasure, and some residents hire the magician at $3 a day. Joseph Smith later gets stones of his own and used them to locate lost tools, thereby gaining a reputation as a seer. This is found in C. Clark Julius Joseph Smith. No citations provided, which makes this one very uncredible, simply because we have no source to go back to. Is the story true? Maybe, but we have no original source to look at. So whatever this guy got this this uh, this evidence from, he fails to put it in the book where it's located. Now, 21st of September, 1823, Moroni's visit, according to Willard Chase's testimony. Joseph Smith Sr. tells Willard Chase, a neighbor and a friend of the Smiths, as we've already talked about, that a spirit appeared to Joseph Smith on the 21st of September, 1823, and told him of gold plates to be retrieved on the 22nd of September. The spirit instructed him to dress in black clothes, ride a black horse with a switch tail, demand the book in a certain name, and after getting it, take it away without laying it down. Joseph complies. He finds the box, opens the cover, removes the plates, but laid them down to put the cover back on the box. The plates disappeared and returned to the box. Right? We've all heard this this version of the story somewhere along the way in church history. At least I did. Uh, I remember people kind of talking about this. So he returns the... So the plates are are mystically returned to the box. Smith tries to retake the plates, but he saw something like a toad. Now this goes back to this kind of salamander idea. A toad which soon assumed the appearance of a man and struck Smith on the side of his head. It struck him again. And when he tried to take the plates again, the spirit told him he could not have them as he had not obeyed the orders and was instructed to return in one year with his oldest brother, Alvin. Now this is Willard Chase's testimony. Now here's the secret too. And there's so many cool things in the story. Moroni visits on the 21st of September, 1823. Joseph goes to the hill on the 22nd. He's told that he has to bring Alvin back the following year to receive the plates. Problem is, in November, Alvin dies. We've all been told this story. Alvin is sick. He's not feeling well. A doctor comes to the home and administers a ball of calomel or chamomile, which essentially had a chunk of mercury in the center of it, forces Alvin to swallow it. It gets lodged in in his intestines, and he essentially is poisoned to death by the doctors. The other thought, too, is that perhaps his appendix had burst, which precipitated all of this, and that he would have died anyway, uh, but that either way, it's this tragic death in the, the Smith home. Alvin on his deathbed, remember this, Alvin on his deathbed is telling Joseph, do whatever you can do to get the plates. You must get the record. 
and we've already talked about that Alvin is is involved with this magic folklore, this occultic stuff. And I don't want to use occult in in a negative way like sorcery and witchery that we do today. Just just kind of this 1800s way of trying to connect with mystical things and and essentially trying to provide explanations for things that science has not yet done. He needs to bring Alvin with him to the hill the next year, but he can't do that because Alvin has passed away. Now, in church history, we know the story where Joseph Smith Sr. goes to the newspaper and reports in the paper several times that he has heard vicious rumors of someone trying to disturb Alvin's body and that he wants to put these rumors to rest. And if I remember right... Joseph Smith Sr. and a few others actually dig up Alvin's body to make sure that it hasn't been tampered with. But here's the key. D. Michael Quinn talks about this, that Joseph and his family and their involvement in this magic folklore, this folk magic, one of the things that you would have to do if if you needed to bring someone to an event, to some kind of thing that was going to happen, if a spirit told you to do that and, and you couldn't, any longer get that person because they had died, that you needed to bring a part of their blood or a piece of their body. So what we're going back to here is that the actual person who likely was being rumored to dig up Alvin was Joseph Smith himself, who needed to take a part of Alvin with him to the hill when he went there in 1824. He needs to dig up Alvin and cut off his arm and take the hand with him. Something like that. And that is what precipitates Joseph Smith Sr. being all distraught over these vicious rumors in the town about his son Alvin's body being tampered with. Now, 22nd of September, 1824. Joseph Smith tells of a second attempt to get the plates, but without Alvin, because Alvin is dead, Smith is told to return in one year with another that would be known to him as the right person. Smith decides that that person is Samuel T. Lawrence another treasure seeker and a seer. Lawrence tells Smith to use his seer stone to look into the box and asks Smith Smith if he sees anything else in the box. Smith says no. Lawrence asks him to look again and ask if he sees a large pair of specks with the plates. Smith says he sees the specks. Lawrence says the plates should not be seen by anyone for about two years. At this point... Joseph Smith changes his mind somewhere along here that Samuel Lawrence is not the right man to bring. 1825. Joseph Smith is given a green stone, a green seer stone by Jack Belcher. This is also spoken about in the Refiner's Fire, The Making of Mormon Cosmology, page 151 to 152. Joseph Smith later, in or after 1825, tells the story about retrieving the plates to Joseph Knight. Smith says he looked into his glass seer stone and saw that the right person to bring was Emma Hale. Joseph later tells Henry Harris that he had a revelation from God that the plates were hidden in a certain hill and he looked into his stone and saw them, but an angel said he couldn't get them until he was married. So 1825, he's he's met with the Hales. Now, how does he meet the Hales? Because Josiah Stoll, Josiah Stoll comes up from Pennsylvania to Palmyra having heard of the ability of Joseph Smith Jr. How he hears, we don't know. But he hears that Joseph is able to find lost things, that Joseph has an ability to to find treasures in the earth, and so he hires Joseph Smith Jr. to help him find buried treasure. 1826, 
Joseph is accused and brought to trial by Josiah Stoll's nephew for the the accusation is glass looking. Glass looking is essentially to deceive someone by telling them that you can find things by looking at a stone. So there's even this legal classification for what Joseph is doing. And so Joseph Smith goes to trial, except that he's not convicted as best we know. Now, this the, the evidence here is murky. Some scholars state that they believe that he was convicted. Other scholars say that he was given kind of a misdemeanor-type charge and let off. Others say he was found guilty and given the ability to kind of escape out of it. And But most evidence points to the fact that he was not convicted and let off. And the reason that is, and we know this, is because Josiah Stoll testifies on Joseph's behalf. So Josiah Stoll's nephew brings these charges, takes Joseph Smith Jr. to to court, and Josiah Stoll, the uncle who's hired Joseph Smith, testifies on Joseph's behalf. There are others there, too. I believe maybe it's Josiah Stoll's nieces or his daughters or something also testify there and testify on Joseph's behalf that he actually has this ability to see things. Now, how can you convict somebody of taking advantage of another when that other person testifies that that the person taking advantage really isn't taking advantage and that they really do have some ability? We don't know about the 1826 visit to the Hill Cumorah, but let's fast forward now to the fall of 1826, uh, where something else happens, though. Joseph Smith Jr. and Samuel Lawrence go to Pennsylvania, where Joseph proposes to Emma Hale. This is where he's he's encountered by Isaac Hale, Emma's father, who rebukes Joseph and essentially, you know, lights into him about how disappointed he is in Joseph as a as a potential husband to his daughter. But they get married, and now we're at that that precipice moment in 1827 September when Joseph revisits the hill which we call Camorra. The dates here get a little fuzzy. What we're told here is 26th of September 1827 that this happened. 10 to 12 money diggers are with Willard Chase. Chase sends for his own conjurer, Samuel Lawrence, to determine where the plates are hidden. Conjurers, including Sally Chase with her green glass and another diviner, are brought in from 60 miles away. Samuel Lawrence is that other person, according to Lucy Max Smith. They try to locate the plates by stone, by the stone. To elude Chase and Lawrence, Joseph moves the plates from the hearth of the cooper's shop in the yard to where Joseph Smith Sr. carried on his trade. He buried the box under a floorboard and hid the plates themselves in a pile of flax in the shop loft. That night, Willard Chase and his sister, Sally Chase, with her green glass, came with their friends to search. They rummaged around the outside but did not come in. Lucy learned later that Sally Chase told the men the plates were in the coopering shop. The next morning, the Smiths found the floor torn up and the box smashed. To their relief, the plates were safely buried in the flax. We find this in Richard L. Bushman's Rough Stone Rolling. In the fall of 1827, Smith approaches Willard Chase, who's a carpenter, and asks him to make a strong chest to hold the golden plates. We all have heard about this strong chest, right? This has been told to us throughout our, throughout church history, that Joseph needs a box to put the plates in, that, and that he goes and has a box made, and he sends Hiram after, uh, the person who made the box. Well, that person is Willard Chase. In lieu of payment, Smith offers to give Chase a share of the profits generated by the plates. 
Willard Chase, Sally Chase's brother, Sally's a diviner, Willard's the Smith's friends, and it's Willard Chase who's making the strong box for Joseph Smith and to put the plates in, and yet Willard and with his friends are ones trying to find the gold plates from Joseph when he's hiding them. 1828, Joseph Smith tells Emma's cousins, Heel and Joseph Lewis, that while trying to get the plates, he was knocked down three times. A man that looked like a Spaniard appeared, with a long beard and his throat cut from ear to ear with blood flowing down. Smith opened the box and saw the plates, but before trying to take anything, looked in the box to see if there was any other treasure. Smith says he then tried to take the plates, but received a shock. We've all heard the story about being shocked when he gets the plates. An angel then appeared and then told him he couldn't have the plates because he didn't obey the commandment of the Lord. This comes from Oliver Cowdery letters. Now, I will stop here and just say there is a letter out there proposed to be by Oliver Cowdery that is considered a fraud. I don't know if this is tied to that. Again, I am I am urging you. It is There is so much information available to to dive into all these different aspects of the story, it, it would have taken me weeks and weeks and weeks to resource every single source and to give you my personal opinion on which ones are credible and which ones aren't. I am simply giving you a heads up that this is one you may want to go look back on and see if this is part of that forged letter that we are pretty certain actually does not come from Oliver or if this is a separate letter that we do know comes from Oliver and hence gives the story more credibility. Early 1828, Isaac Hale... From his from the Isaac Hale statements, so Isaac Hale is on record a few times, and in one of those statements, he talks about that Joseph informed them, the Hales, that it would be his firstborn son who would translate the book, and he's not the only source for this. This is kind of a cool little fork in the road we can kind of go down for a moment. Let me share with you the other sources. We actually have four sources. For this idea that Joseph Smith had told people that his oldest son, as a youth, as a toddler, would translate what's on the plates. First one comes from Joshua M. Kuhn, M. little hyphen K-U-N-E, no date provided. This is the quote from him. Joseph Smith Jr. told him that Smith's first child was to translate the characters and hieroglyphics upon the plates into our language at the age of three years. Second one comes from Emma's father, March 20th, 1834. Isaac Hale says, I inquired of Joseph Smith Jr. who was to be the first who would be allowed to see the book of plates. He said it was a young child. Next source is Willard Chase, 11th December, 1833. In the spring of 1829, Harris went to Pennsylvania and on his return to Palmyra reported that the prophet's wife in the month of June following would be delivered of a male child that would be able, when two years old, to translate the Gold Bible. And then Sophia Lewis, no date given, says she states that she heard Smith say, quote, the book of plates would not be opened under penalty of death by any other person but his firstborn, which was to be a male. So we have these multiple sources that Joseph is telling people that it's his oldest child, his firstborn, when two or three years old, will translate the gold plates. The problem is that when Emma delivers the baby. It is a boy, but it dies at birth or shortly thereafter. And so there's no way that this child is going to be the translator of the record. 7th October 1835, Joseph Smith uses a white stone to give Newell K. Whitney a patriarchal blessing. In 1859, 
Martin Harris tells about money digging in Tiffany's monthly magazine. He says, quote, Samuel Lawrence told me that while they were digging, a large man who appeared to be eight or nine feet high, sounds a lot like Zelf, eight or nine feet high, came and sat on the ridge of the barn and motioned to them that they must leave. These things were real to them, I believe, because they told me in confidence and told by different ones, and their stories agreed, and they seemed to be in earnest. 1870, Martin Harris, speaking to a group of saints in Clarkston, Utah, in the 1870s, said, quote, I will tell you a wonderful thing that happened after Joseph had found the plates. Three of us took some tools to go to the hill and hunt for some more boxes or gold or something, and indeed we found a stone, a stone box. But behold, by some unseen power, it slipped back into the hill. Now this is a is a magic folklore, folk magic story. Whenever anybody goes treasure digging in the 1800s, it's a common story, it's a common theme that weaves into this, which is that the seer who sees the treasure in the stone sends the diggers out to dig it, and just before they get it, the treasure slips further into the earth, or it slips further away in a distance from where they're at. And here's Martin saying the same kind of thing happening uh, in his experience. 17 May 1888, an egg-shaped stone used for the Manti temple dedication. Quote, the statement has been made that the Urim and Thummim were on the altar of the Manti temple when the building was dedicated. The Urim and Thummim so spoken of, however, was the seer stone, which was in the possession of the prophet Joseph Smith in the early days. This seer stone is now in possession of the church. That is found in Doctrines of Salvation, volume 3, page 225. So you have early church leaders acknowledging that they've got at least one of the seer stones. Again, let's get a little more interesting. 1955, Apostle Alvin R. Dreyer discovers Jacob Whitmer's seer stone in possession of Whitmer's grandchild. 1982, a descendant of Brigham Young, Mary Brown Firmage, was told by the First Presidency Secretary that there were three seer stones in the First Presidency's vault. She was allowed to see one when she visited that office. She reported, quote, the stone was not chocolate brown, but rather the color of brown sugar. It was three or four inches long, two inches wide, and had a hump in the middle, which made it perhaps two inches thick at the thickest point. It was flat on the bottom and had three black concentric circles on the top half inch. Below the circles were many small black circles. The stone was not transparent. This was from Mary Brown Firmage interview with Richard S. Van Wagner, 11 August 1986, the Van Wagner Papers at the Marriott Library. February 1984, Stephen F. Christensen, that name should ring a bell, buys the Whitmer Seer Stone. And here's why that name should ring a bell. 15 October 1984, Stephen F. Christensen is killed by Mark Hoffman. The Whitmer Seer Stone remains in private hands. 1993, the Belcher Seer Stone, the third one that Joseph got, sells for $75,000. Now here's some additional notes. The trouble with getting into the, the Seer Stone and treasure digging and beginning to realize the relationship that Joseph has with Willard Chase and Abner Cole and, and all of these guys, they're all running around and they're all involved in this, is that when we get into folk magic, there's other things involved. There is a book that the Smiths would have been aware of called, I think it's called Magnus, and it's a book about about the occult and how you how you find these guardian spirits of treasures and how you locate the treasures and how you perform different mystical 
I don't want to say seances, but mystical experiences, how you create a mystical uh, event to occur and what are the rules you play by and how do you go about handling these things? And so Heal Lewis, again, Emma's cousin, stated that Joseph used the peep stone found while digging a well for the Chase family in 1822. This is B.H. Roberts, Salt Lake City Deseret News, Press, 1930, Volume 1, page 120. It was used to translate the golden plates and directed his enchantments in dog sacrifices, and it was all by the same spirit. Now, here's why this is important. Because the Hurlbut affidavits, which go into Eber Howe's Mormonism Unveiled, which is the very first anti-Mormon book that is written. Eber Howe, as he writes this book, he sends out a philastrious Hurlbut, that's the guy's name, to collect affidavits against the Smith family. And some of these affidavits he's collecting are from the Smith neighbors talking about these mystical things that the Smiths would do. And one of the things they accused the Smiths of doing was as they were going out and trying to find treasures and digging, and part of it was trying to ward off evil spirits who were trying to stop you or the guardian spirits who would try to guard these treasures. And so you would have to kill an animal and make a sacrifice and draw a circle around the spot that you're trying to keep these spirits away from. And so the the Hurlbut affidavits talk about the Smith family, specifically Joseph, slitting a dog's throat and pouring blood in a circle to ward off these evil spirits. And then here we have the Amboy Journal, June 4th, 1879, where Heal Lewis, Emma's cousin, reports that this is going on. And so now you have a second source that's talking about it. And all of a sudden, this idea has more validity. Alva Hell, Emma Smith's brother, said Joe Smith never handled one shovel of earth in these diggings. See, in the church, sometimes we talk about Joseph is a treasure digger. And we sometimes think like this Josiah Stoll guy is hiring Joseph. He's telling these guys where the treasure is. Joseph's just one of the diggers. And Joseph's digging a hole trying to find this. Not true. Joseph isn't digging. Joseph is the person who is heading up the dig. He's the one who is telling everybody where the treasure is and where to dig at. Joseph Smith never, quote, Joseph Smith never, sorry, let me do this again. Quote, Joe Smith never handled one shovel of earth in those diggings. All that Smith did was to peep with that stone and hat and give directions where and how to dig and when and where the enchantment moved the treasure. That Smith said if he would work with his hands at digging there, he would lose the power to see with the stone. In other words, guys, I can't, I can't actually pick up the shovel and dig. If I do that, guys, I can no longer see the treasure in the earth. I have to keep holding on to this hat with a stone in it because my job is to lead you to the treasure and none of you guys can do that. So you guys just got to keep digging. So that's what's going on there. Lucy Max Smith wrote that Josiah Stoll came all the way from Pennsylvania to see her son on account of having heard that he possessed certain keys by which he could discern things invisible to the natural eye. Again, so much of this is happening before Joseph even gets the plates. And then we have to start thinking about the Moroni story, right? Treasure digging involves, obviously, there's this treasure, usually some kind of precious metal. It's in the earth. And it's guarded by some type of guardian spirit. And one has to follow certain rules to be able to get that treasure away from that guardian spirit. And then we look at Moroni. And we look at Moroni is a guardian spirit. The gold plates are a precious metal. At least Joseph thinks so early on. And they are buried in the hill. It's just, I totally get it. For those who struggle with the church's 
with the narrative that Joseph has given us and the one the church has given us, it's because it just feels like it's more of the same thing Joseph's been doing since 1819. And to top this off, right? I mean, the Smith family, we read often in church history how the Smiths were hired out to dig wells. For instance, the well with Willard Chase in 1822 when he finds the second seer stone. So Joseph and his dad and his brothers are are hired out as hired hands to dig wells. And we think, ah, oh, big deal. He's basically a day laborer. But no, that we live in, you have to take yourself back to 1820. Think about this for a moment. You don't just dig wherever and hope you find water. And at the same time, we don't have the technology then that allows someone to just find water. So what you did was you found somebody in your community who was a water witcher, who used a divining rod and could locate the water. This is why the Smiths are hired out regularly to dig wells. This is why Joseph is with at the Chase's home digging a well. Because their family had a gift for water witching, which was tied into all the other folk magic that they were doing. In fact, Oliver Cowdery himself is a water witcher. And all we have to do is go back to the source, which is on the church's website regarding Doctrine and Covenants history. Let me share that one with you. So all we have to do is go to history.lds.org, or you can just do a Google search. Type in gift of the rod Oliver Cowdery LDS. Type all those words into Google and see what comes up. It should be this site, history.lds.org. This is a site the church has put out to put more context to the revelations. And this is speaking about uh, essentially this point where Oliver is receiving a revelation from Joseph Smith, from the Lord, talking to him about the gifts that he's been given. Oliver, And it says here, quote, Oliver Cowdery lived in a culture steeped in biblical ideas, language, and practices. The revelations referenced to Moses likely resonated with him. The Old Testament account of Moses and his brothers Aaron recounted several instances of using rods to manifest God's will. Many Christians in Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery's day similarly believed in divining rods as instruments for revelation. Cowdery was among those who believed in and used a divining rod. And it goes on. The Lord recognized Oliver's ability to use a rod. Quote, this is from D&C section 8, 8 through 11. This is what the original text said before it was changed. Quote, thou hast another gift, which is the gift of working with the rod. Behold, there is no other power save God that can cause this thing of nature to work in your hands, for it is the work of God. And so if Oliver desired, the revelation went on to say the Lord would add the gift of translation to the revelatory gifts Oliver already possessed. And so in my mind, I'm just, you know, I'm just talking with other people and we're, we're kind of just delving into this idea and we're picturing just Oliver standing over, standing over the plates with a divining, a water witching rod, a divining rod and trying to translate that this was his tool of translation. We don't know much about the details of Oliver's attempt to translate it apparently didn't go well, and Joseph resumed doing the translating. But that at least gives you more information to go on. Again, this folk magic is prevalent within the community. I'm not saying that half the population did it. I'm not saying 25% of the population did it. But enough of them are doing it that we have like a dozen different individuals in the Palmyra area who are all tied to each other, or whether people are coming in, like Oliver Cowdery, who's coming in to help Joseph begin the translation, is tied into this. And it all tends to be kind of this steep thing. Now, in recent years, Grant Palmer, who wrote uh, 
an insider's view. And I will absolutely say as a critic, and again, you could go check out his sources. He says he was shown by Earl Olson the three seer stones in the first presidency vault. The first was milk chocolate in color like a baseball, in shape with no stripes. Different from the descriptions of the founding prophet's dark-colored Book of Mormon seer stone, the first stone's origin and chain of ownership are unknown, at least outside the LDS presidency's office. The second was shiny or polished stone with stripes, dark brown, size between an egg and a handball. The only description Palmer gave for the third was that it was a small stone. The brown and white stones were the only seer stones Joseph Smith definitely used, yet he acquired others as Church as Church T. Young told the apostles in 1855 that Smith had five seer stones. Young's statement makes it clear that Smith did not regard his seer stones simply as relics of his youth. Rather, as church president, Smith continued to discover new seer stones. Again, early Mormonism in the world magic, magic worldview, uh, page 245-246. It also comes out of the Salt Lake City Messenger, issue number 105. My hope is here, we've gone on here for a little over half an hour. I hope you find this intriguing. This is so cool. I want to wrap up just kind of flipping through a few more papers here and just seeing, and there are instances of Joseph actually seeing things with these stones and being accurate. Uh, one of the things Josiah stole right away built trust in Joseph was because Joseph from way far away from Josiah's home looks in the seer stone and describes Josiah stole's house and outhouses to a T that Josiah stole is so impressed that he sees this gift as being very real. Martin Harris says that Joseph finds a pin in a pile of wood shavings using the seer stone. Joseph puts the stone in the hat, buries his face into it, and tells Martin exactly where to look in the pile. That seems like incredible, an incredible experience that lends some weight to there's something going on here. Martin Harris also at one point tries to switch out Joseph's seer stone while they're translating the Book of Mormon. They're out throwing rocks by the stream. Joseph or uh, Martin Harris finds a rock that looks a lot like Joseph's translation stone. They get back inside and, and Joseph goes to get a drink of water or something and Martin switches the two stones. And Joseph comes in, buries his face into the hat, excluding light, right? Which which at least gives more credibility to Joseph that how could he even tell his stone apart with all the light gone um, by bearing his face into the hat. And we're not talking about houses that are lit by, by incandescent lights. We're talking about candlelight or sunlight coming through a small window. But Joseph somehow picks up on the fact that this is not his stone. And he says, Martin, what's going on? Everything is as dark as Egypt. And Martin finally confesses up that he switched the stones. And so there seems to be some credibility to Joseph actually having some kind of skill or talent here. But yet, this treasure digging, this occultic, this this folk magic is certainly not part of the story we're used to. And I think it's the real reason why the church hesitates to share the seer stone or the this description of Joseph translating with a stone in a hat. It's not because this is weirder than the narrative we have been taught. Rather, this story leads to a lot more information that I think the church would prefer to kind of avoid talking about. Other things that uh, that are interesting. Uh, several witnesses, uh, Martin Harris, Emma Smith, uh, David Whitmer, all talk about Joseph using a stone in a hat. Oliver Cowdery, who seems to be involved with the majority of the translation, seems to be the witness who most often talks about the interpreters or the the Nephite interpreters or the spectacles. By the way, spectacles, 
many apologists see spectacles as a very negative word, one that has some kind of huge negative connotation to it. Personally, I don't mind using it because Joseph Smith himself on at least one or two occasions used the word spectacles when describing the Nephite interpreters. We also ought to pick up a little bit. Brigham Young plays on this idea and talks about how Joseph taught him and taught the saints that there is a seer stone out there for everyone. Quote, this is uh, the Millennial Star, 26th of February. No, sorry. Millennial Star number 26, February 20th, 1864. Every man who lived on earth was entitled to a seer stone and should have one, but they are kept from them in consequence of their wickedness. And most of those who do not find one make evil. Most of those who do find one make evil use of it. So we have Brigham teaching that uh, that Joseph taught him and others that everyone would have a seer stone, which just makes that a really cool, cool story. Again, Joseph being accused as a glass looker, which again, I just find it fascinating that that's a term that's used in his day, that there were other people who were brought to charges of glass looking. Um, Hiram Pate, there are other Mormons who are using seer stones, Jacob and David Whitmer, Philo Dibble, W.W. Phelps, Elizabeth Ann Whitney, all valued seer stones. You remember the story of 1830 where Hiram Page, one of the eight witnesses to the Book of Mormon, claimed to be having a series of revelations through a black seer stone. And then finally, Joseph just gets fed up with it and announces that these revelations are from the devil, devil. And Page agrees to discard the stone, which according to contemporary sources was broke to powder and the writings burnt. And that put an end to, to Hiram Page's, uh, attempt to use a seer stone to give us, uh, revelations from God. Uh, the Whitmer family devoted to their importance, later said that their disenchantment with Mormonism began when Joseph Smith stopped using his seer stone as an instrument of revelation. In November 1837, the Kirtland High Council disfellowshipped 11-year-old James C. Brewster and his parents and several associates for claiming that he had the gift of seeing and looking through or into a stone. Nevertheless, some Mormons continue to believe in the power of seer stones. Again, Joseph uh, taught Brigham Young that they had value. And Brigham makes mention that Joseph kept looking for them. And again, we have this other quote that he had five of them at one point, or at least throughout his life had five of them. And we've already talked about the story of how he got three of them. The story to me is just fascinating. According to Apostle Joseph Fielding Smith, the LDS Church owns one of Smith's seer stones. Nevertheless, since the 19th century, no president of the church has openly used a seer stone in his role as prophet, seer, and revelator. Now, here's what seems odd to me. Joseph gave us deep revelation from God. Joseph is using seer stones. Everyone after Joseph is not using seer stones. And at that point, the, the amount in the, the extreme to which revelations were received by Joseph seems to essentially just drop off to almost nothing thereafter, at least not revelations to that kind and sort. And so part of me goes, hmm, why don't, why don't they start trying to use the stone again? Maybe this is where something really cool happens. It's, it's about 1828 when the term for the Nephite interpreter or spectacles and the seer stone begin to get convoluted and all of a sudden, both devices are referred to as the Urim and Thummim. Both devices tend to kind of be mixed up for each other, and and something t- tends to be be lost uh, as that begins to happen. So that's another source. Uh, let's see if I've got 
if I've got anything else here. Uh, it should be noted the expression Urim and Thummim is never used at all in the Book of Mormon. Uh, we have Willard Chase's quote here on how uh, Joseph got that second seer stone, which was the one the church released pictures of that was used in the translation. Willard Chase says, In the year 1822, I was engaged in digging a well. I employed Alvin and Joseph Smith to assist me. Now I stop here. Why? Because they're able to find water. They're water witchers. After digging about 20 feet below the surface of the earth, we discovered a singularly appearing stone, which excited my curiosity. I brought it to the top of the well, and as we were examining it, notice Willard's the one down in the hole digging. While we were examining it, Joseph put it into his hat and then his face into the top of his hat. The next morning he came to me and wished to obtain the stone, alleging that he could see in it. But I told him I did not wish to part with it on account of it being a curiosity, but I would lend it to him. When when Joseph got done with the Book of Mormon, the, the account, the storyline goes that he gives the brown seer stone that you just saw, he gives that to Oliver Cowdery. Oliver Cowdery keeps it with him the rest of his life. When he dies, Brigham Young's brother, um, Brigham Young's brother, Phineas Young, goes to see Oliver Cowdery's widow and gets the stone from her, brings it back and gives it to Brigham Young. Uh, the Mormon Matters episode that just released in the Seer Stone talked about how uh, many members of the church who were at that Manti dedication and saw that Seer Stone on the altar go to church headquarters and essentially, you know, you could back then church is so small, you could walk in and ask for a visit with, with the church president or, or member of the first presidency or the quorum of the 12. And you were almost always granted it. And then on some of these visits, some of these members asked to see the seer stone and they were shown it. It was shown to them. And yet here we are 2015 and the stone is being unveiled for all Latter-day Saints to see what it looked like and to begin to grasp the reality of the story. Now, the story we're going to tell is going to be really simple, but the story I've told you tonight is the detailed story, and I'm sure I'm missing parts and pieces. In fact, email me at realmormon at gmail.com. Let me know what important pieces of this puzzle I've left out. I would love to hear that, but I hope that as you listen tonight that you picked up a lot more insight into what was going on with this story, and it's my hope that each of us can look at the Book of Mormon, because I'm to a place now where I look at the Book of Mormon and I say, man, that book draws me to Christ. That book is full of truth. When I pray about the Book of Mormon, I thought the answer to my prayer was that this book is true and that it is historical. I no longer think that's what the answer to my prayer was. It may be historical. It may not be. I think whatever is going on there is something we still, even both sides of the aisle, still don't have the right explanation for. I think something divine was going on there. And regardless of what that was, that book draws me closer to Christ. It's my prayer that we can jump into this messiness. We can see this story for what it is. We can deal with folk magic head on and realize that on some level, Joseph is doing something incredible. And out of that incredibleness, we have the Book of Mormon. May the Lord warm your shoulders. God bless you. Have an awesome day. And may each of you find ways to lead with faith. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
issues never healed.